Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Strange airships people saw in the 1800s. How far back do alien abduction reports go? What is the alien deception? Hello and welcome to the 200. The Oh, wow, the 2020 uh, Greater New England UFO Conference Film Festival. And uh, welcome to the 865th uh, edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you live from the Wilton Town Hall Theater in Wilton, uh, New Hampshire, coincidentally named. Uh, if you happen to be able to applause. There we go. Lovely. Here are the applause. Feels like we're, we're in Rocky and Bullwinkle. I'm Ben. And those far-out questions came from my co-host and partner in the Paranormal Adventures and 50-year uh, work anniversary, Father Paul. And today we will, uh, we bring you in a returning guest uh, from July to continue the fascinating conversation uh, we started then. And we welcome your calls today. Uh, maybe we can try. Uh, 401-766-1240. That's from anywhere. Or you can email paul behind the paranormal.com or contact us via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Well, uh, coming to us today from the U.K. via Skype is Nigel Watson, who has researched and investigated many historical and contemporary reports of UFO sightings and has co-authored several articles about phantom airships seen over Britain in 1909 and 1913. A wider survey of these reports is contained in his e-book entitled The Origin of UFOs, Phantom Airships, 1807-1917. Nigel also is the author of Portraits of Alien Encounters, Supernatural Spielberg (coughs) with Darren Slade, (coughs) excuse me, and editor, writer of The Scareship Mystery, a survey of Phantom Airship Scares, 1909 to 1918. In addition, he has written for numerous books, (coughs) publications, and websites. Nigel holds degrees in psychology and film and literature. He lives in Plymouth, Devon, England. He can be contacted at Nigel Watson 1 at gmail.com. So, Nigel Watson, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Hello. Good to be here. <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Okay, good. I'm going to switch headphones here. We're uh, seat of the pants here. Okay. So, Nigel, um, I'll, I'll ask the first question. Ben, uh, his blood pressure is too high. Uh, technicalities. Um, so, uh, when you were with us in July, we left off uh, around the turn of the 20th century. Please tell us about the scare ships of that period. Okay. Well, uh, the, the major scare ship um, was in uh, 1896 to 1897, the United States. And there's probably about 100,000 reports or sightings of uh, things seen in the sky. Um, like today, a vast majority of the sightings were of lights in the sky, were fairly vague things. But there were other accounts of actual craft um, which had propellers and uh, wings on them. And some people actually said they met occupants of these craft, and they um, even had stations, which um, is something like the modern-day close encounters of the third kind we have. Um, a lot of these stories were mainly reported in the newspapers and um, became a kind of national sensation 
Um, it spread from um, the southwest coast to the east coast. And um, by April time of 1897, the stories got more incredible. Um, most of the accounts tend to be of, um, when we are close encounters, tend to be of people talking to the pilot who says he's an inventor who's secretly testing out the craft at night. And the inventor usually says that he's doing test flights and that he's going to do, you know, announce a big revelation about um, uh, having this new aircraft that will be presented to the public. And, of course, uh, no such dramatic demonstration was ever made in public. And uh, it seems like... Um, you don't know whether people were just making these stories up or whether there really was some inventor. Some people today even think there was an inventor at work uh, for some of these sightings. But um, it's very difficult to prove. And of course, at that time, people could actually um, launch balloons and steerable balloons, but they didn't actually have uh, airship technology like we had uh, by the turn of the century, so still quite quite puzzling cases. Um, some of the more incredible ones are, are probably hoaxes, but they're still quite interesting in the context of uh, UFO sightings today. Okay. We wanted to move right into a question from Peter. Now, Peter lives in Bogota, Colombia, and <clears throat> he writes in some very excellent questions for almost every show. And uh, we're very, very uh, happy to uh, do that. So, uh, Ben, should I, can you proceed with that? or should uh, I? Please be so kind as to do that. Okay, I'm the only one with a headset here. So, all right, uh, Peter asks, um, please, ask, <clears throat> please ask Nigel about descriptions of the UFO pilots or occupants in the 1800s through 1918. Uh, researcher Michael Schratt, in speaking about the 1897 airship wave, reports said, uh, quote, well-dressed, eccentric inventor-type people on the decks of these craft, unquote, and, quote, big black dogs, unquote. All right. <laughs> Is that what you found? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, up to the end of the First World War as well, uh, no non-humans? Uh, what do you have to report on that? Okay. Um, well, a lot of them were, like you said, well-dressed um, inventor types, really, um, so we look like respectful citizens that do expect to see in the high street or, you know, behind the counter of a bank. Um, some, there were one or two reports of people seeing um, Japanese people piloting these craft, which, um, you know, is a bit unusual. I think John Keel mentions that in his book, Operation Train Horse, which kind of brought all these cases to light for modern ufologists. And um, there's even one case where somebody was said he encountered a, an airship in a field on his own. And it had a kind of um, classical Greek characters who were naked. And uh, it was almost like Adam and Eve he encountered. And yet they had this airship that had this incredible technology inside, which like modern day contactees. The, um, they actually showed like nonsense, really, that none of this technology would really work in real life, um, which is very much like the contact to literature 
where, you know, they describe all these incredible mother ships and scout craft technology that on us. It doesn't really matter. Um, and there's also the classic case of the, the um, airship that crashed at the um, Aurora, Texas, mm. uh, crashed, um, Judge, I think it's Judge Potter's windmill, and um, it, it, they found a, a, a sort of alien pilot in there before it came from Mars and had hieroglyphic writing on his person. And they thought he was a Martian, but rather incredibly, in within a few days, and there's no real description of the actually recovered an alien from a craft, he wouldn't immediately bury them. I think, you know, you'd have an alien autopsy like basically uh, modern days. So I think that's probably a better case of some sort of alien. But most of the airship involved human beings because people tended to believe it was an invent yeah, a little trouble with your audio here, but <clears throat> and Angela, let, let me ask. Um, uh, it certainly is is uh, plausible that people would see a craft uh, high up and would see people looking over and and might interpret, say, the classic gray, for example, as yeah. someone of Asian descent, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think my mic somehow got muted there. Yeah, okay. Uh, sabotaged by aliens. No, I, I don't know if you got the question, but uh, the the issue of uh, people seeing something high in the sky and then people who might appear uh, Asian in descent uh, if they were of the classic uh, gray variety, that sort of thing. And, and the black dogs, I mean, that, that, that's a good one. I mean, sort of, uh, uh, could that be something else? People yeah, just interpret that- yeah, in, in Britain, the black dog's a classic folklore um, image. Uh, where I come from in Lincolnshire, there used to be a folklorist who actually collected lots of stories of black dogs, uh, often seen um, you know, late at night. And it was quite interesting also that um, I spoke to um, somebody called Ethel Rudkin, who was very old and investigated all these cases in the 1930s. There are also even cases of people on, uh, say, bicycles cycling past mysterious uh, areas where the lights would go out, uh, very much like the car stop incidents of today. There would be places where horses would actually stop because there, were, uh, there seemed to be these places of supernatural power, uh, often where black dogs were seen. Um, so it, it's interesting that we're at a kind of um, and I think another factor is that uh, with the Asian type aliens were more prevalent in early um, abduction and UFO cases. Uh, Anthony Villas 
Boas um, famously was abducted on an air, a spaceship in 1957, and their uh, description is of a, a sort of Asian type woman who, who is who is seduced by, and also with Betty and Barney Hill, the the, um, the aliens they spotted um, had um, slightly Oriental features, but weren't quite full. Um, greys that we get today so you almost feel like there has been a slight evolution through you know, modern day abduction cases of going from you know, slightly foreign looking people to uh, rays which are totally alien um, perhaps it's because at first I suppose um, the aliens were regarded more humanoid at the beginning you know, especially with can contactee cases people like George Adamski met very human like aliens that would be unrecognisable um, you know, would just be able to pass as human in, in our society um, whereas nowadays we tend to have more alien looking aliens if I can put it that way and um, so you know, over a period We've got the greys, and also throughout the 60s were lots of different looking aliens, like robots and all sorts of different shapes and sizes. But now it's kind of consolidated itself to the, you know, major impact of the grey. So, you know, I think it's interesting to look at how the ships have evolved from airships through to... Um, mystery after spaceships and the aliens themselves have also uh, adjusted their appearance to go with the type of technology because there's some grand intelligence you know, manipulating our minds or it just might be that uh, reflecting what we expect to see in the skies when we see something unusual so it's a fascinating area to look at Okay. We have a second question from Peter in South America. Uh, have you discovered any cases of abductions in the same time period? Now, you've talked about abductions, but not necessarily in the uh, 1800s right. or early 1900s. Again, in the best scare of 1896 and 97, numerous stories of airships dropping anchors um, and the drag along the ground. Um, one person said he, um, one of his anchors caught onto his trousers and he was being dragged into the air, but he managed to grab a sapling and uh, the um, anchor ripped away his trousers. And uh, it was another case not long afterwards where somebody, uh, an old village was said to have come out of church and seen an anchor dragging along the ground and we were kind of uh, chasing the anchor, and a little man in a blue sailor suit came to, was coming down the rope, but when he saw other people following the anchor, he cut the rope and ran back into the airship. Um, those are quite interesting stories, and there's a classic case of um, um, uh, a, a farmer called Hamilton who said his um, calf was actually winched into the air by an airship, and then a few days later, the, the dead corpse of the calf was found um, on his farm. And there again, there's a link there with, um, you know, cattle mutilations of today. 
and um, but a lot of these stories of the anchor uh, are a bit suspicious and probably were hoaxes because um, there were kind of stories like that from medieval literature and fair enough people at that time you know weren't reading medieval literature but one or two newspapers had dug up stories from ancient chronicles of airships with anchors and so it kind of got reinterpreted in the terms of the phantom airships um, but some of these stories came from Britain where people said they'd seen an anchor drop and I think um, it was almost like a part of a folklore story like um, people felt that um, there was another land ab above the sky and vessels were sailing in it um, so if if you went high enough, you'd go into this other realm. I think that's something that um, Charles Fort talks about. You know, the Super Sargosso Sea. You know, where rain blood, uh, rain of blood, and frogs fall down. So, um, you know, there's quite quite a lot of strands that link um, the old uh, airship sightings with the modern day things. But there again, you know, there's a um, a grey area between what's real and what's fake and what's hoax, you know, a bit like our own time as well. Yes. Well, in any case, we have a live audience, and we could certainly sing somewhere over the rainbow uh, at the end of the show. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we uh, wanted to remind uh, folks, if they want to, uh, set, give a question. We do not, as we usually would in a venue like this, have a live uh, mic for everyone to share because of the COVID restrictions. Uh, I would suggest, though, you can simply make a call uh, to uh, our station. It's uh, 401-766-1240 if you have a question. Or uh, you can write a question down, hand it up to us. Uh, and that goes, of course, for uh, the, well, the live audience. And um, anyone else can certainly make the phone call or send an email to pfe at new, uh, no, I'm sorry, that's the wrong, uh, paul at behindtheparanormal.com. So, uh, so let's continue with uh, Nigel Watson, our distinguished guest. Uh, Nigel, uh, what efforts were actually made to investigate these cases in the early days? It was the military involved, or the the press, uh, and uh, what uh, what was done to really get to the bottom of some of these reports, or, or was there anything really done? Um, yeah, I don't think there were any really. Um um, in-depth investigations of these cases. I think they were just um, um, not taken that um, seriously, really, because um, I suppose they weren't causing any threat to anyone. I suppose if everyone was intrigued by them, and newspaper reporters were sort of trying to track people down. Um, in particular, in 1909, um, at the end of that year, was an airship scare and somebody called uh, Wallace Tillin Tillinghurst said he was the inventor and newspaper reporters hounded him all the time and followed him to see where he, had, he, might, he might have a secret airship base and Tillinghurst was quite a fascinating character because he said he'd flown his craft to New York and um, nearly flew, flew as far as the Statue of Liberty, and then he stopped to do repairs in the sky and then flew back to Boston, I think it was, where he was based, and, and back to his secret base. But he seemed to be quite an interesting character and seemed quite credible, and he was even trying to get um, 
to get to get money for an, uh, to build these airships and to get funding, but um, nothing came of that. And obviously, he never showed his craft in public. But a lot of newspaper reporters were trying to track him down and interview him and followed him, and, and that was quite an intensive period which he kind of complained about but he, he obviously had his own motives of telling these stories and um, yeah that's the other thing with the American situation it was more trying to find out who these inventors were um, whereas in Britain airships and were um, seen more as a threat from Germany because by ni- 1909 uh, Count Zeppelin was um, intensively uh, building massive rigid uh, Zeppelin airships which could um, visit Britain and um, spy out the land for perhaps a possible invasion in the future. So in, in Britain we were seen more as a military threat compared to the United States. And actually in, in, during, the second, uh, during the First World War and the British Ministry of Defence, or the Ministry of War at that time, were um, were, were uh, actively investigating any sightings of things seen in the sky. And there's an actual department at the War Office to investigate these things. And um, so any any sightings were filtered through the police force to the uh, Ministry of War in London. And then, if if we were considered interested enough, we would go and investigate them. And that was in um, you know 1915 and to the end of the war. So there were some official investigations, but mainly uh, these again were um, regarded in terms of a military threat rather than anything else. And and most of these sightings were of lights in the sky. And but the thing is, they did publish a report on how to investigate these cases and the, the sort of misidentifications that could occur and other reasons for people seeing strange things in the sky. So it was kind of like a prototype project loop book. So I think you know that was that was interesting to find in the British archives. And um, but you know, like like modern day. UFO projects, whether government or amateur, that didn't really come to any firm conclusions. And um, I think largely um, uh, we've, we've found it very difficult to pin down anything definite from these sort of uh, investigations, whether they are, you know, government or not. All right. We are coming up on our break, but before we do that, I'd sort of like to put out the idea that uh, uh, when we were at Rendlesham Forest, uh, of course, site of the great okay. 1980 uh, case uh, with, involving the U.S. military, uh, we deliberately mapped out various events that had occurred, including uh, an incident known as the, the uh, Alberg Sky Battle, which occurred uh-huh. in the 17th century, and it was, which was all and all these things were within 40 miles of Rendlesham Forest. Uh, right. perhaps fitting into our idea of the flap area and various or window area, as, as John Keel would say. And uh, when we come back, uh, I thought we could perhaps talk about that and uh, other areas that you may have found uh, airship incidents and, and other things having occurred both before that and after that that may or may not be connected but, but are strange or within the realm of ufology or the paranormal. Right. So um, 
All right, so uh, that being said, uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM 99.5 FM. And uh, we're broadcasting today from the Greater New England UFO Conference Film Festival in Wilton, New Hampshire with a live audience. And we will be right back. Night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Wanna take a ride? All right, and we're back. It's Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM, broadcasting live from the Greater New England UFO Conference Film Festival in Wilton, New Hampshire. And we have our guest all the way from the UK, and it is Nigel Watson, well-known UFO researcher and author. And we're talking about the strange airship or scareship uh, events of the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s. And, uh, Nigel, uh, we uh, left with the thought that perhaps we have uh, concurrent phenomena going on with these or, or uh, they happen in areas where other phenomena are common, the window areas, as John Keel would say. What say yeah. you on that? Um, well, I think it's an interesting area. I think some places like Warminster in Wiltshire in Britain have was a particularly uh, potent uh, window area in the 1960s. And people still visit there today, but obviously not in the numbers that we used to do. But it is a place where um, a lot of sightings occurred um, on Cradle Hill in particular, but it's just a fascinating area with a lot of history. So um, I think... um, some places do seem to attract uh, strange phenomena or uh, and attract and then places like Glastonbury as well of great history of King Arthur and things like that. So I think places that have a, a, a strong mystical past seem to be places where I don't know whether it attracts people who are connected to these sort of things or what, but um, Stonehenge is another fascinating place where people have said we've seen UFOs uh, flying over the uh, area, and that's not too far from Warminster as well. So that whole part of the United Kingdom is kind of fascinating because it's got the links right back thousands of years to um, a, a mystical origins of these uh, structures like Stonehenge and Avebury is another massive um, stone circle that's that's worth looking into mm. because there again people have seen UFOs and ghosts in these areas. And, um, you know, it's interesting, like Rendlesham Forest, it seems a very mo- modern sighting. Um, and yet it has uh, uh, links right back to the past. And I think there have been sightings all around that forest um, long before, um, you know, that fateful, those fateful nights in uh, 1980. Um, yeah, I think John Kill was quite interested in the fact that he came out with these ideas of window areas, and I suppose people have um, expanded that to say there's some sort of portal between, you know, our own planet and 
other um, parallel universes or um, time travellers or whatever. But, um, you know, I think even though I'm quite sceptical, I think if you go to somewhere like Cradle Hill or stand in a stone circle, there is a certain mystical power to them. And you can imagine, you know, what it might have been like way back in uh, ancient times. And I think even in the United States, we're kind of linked with the native Indian traditions of um, people from the skies, creation gods and things like that. So I think ufology, although it's something modern, has a lot of ancient links. And, um, yeah, I think it's quite fascinating to look back at these and just to see the sort of areas where these things seem to concentrate all right. Now, are there areas of the world where these airships were seen outside of Europe and North America? Most of the reports I've heard have been from those those areas. Uh, what about Asia or other areas of the same period or even before or after? I don't know whether it's just because we haven't had the information from other researchers, but it does tend to be a sort of European and American phenomenon. Um, in the... Um, in the First World War, there were more sightings in Canada and South Africa, and um, so it, it was a more worldwide thing, but obviously with a war going on, people equated anything strange in the sky, you know, with um, enemy activities. But South Africa had a particularly potent uh, scare at the beginning of the First World War, um, and people saw... Um, what the thought were German aircraft and you know quite a lot of people saw them as areas where these sightings and uh, you know so it was quite far flung really the locations of these things obviously at the time you did have quite good communications, so newspapers did have worldwide news. So, you know, uh, there was a, bit, a certain amount of communication from the country. But it's interesting, though, you know, that it's so widespread when communication wasn't worldwide uh, as, as, as it is now. Now, one would think these, these airships are large machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, one sees uh, photos of the, of the Hindenburg, for example. Of course, they weren't that large, but they, they still required a lot of space to store, uh, to build, and certainly to launch. Has there been any evidence uh, in the modern era of artifacts left over from any of these ships? or, or any? And again, people like to talk. This is a talk show. And, uh, you know, how do you keep something like that secret if, if it was a terrestrial craft and had been invented by someone here? You know what I'm getting at. Uh, is there any evidence today that has been found that these ships were built and flown from a terrestrial source? Okay, we seem to have a little bit of freezing up here. Uh, Nigel, are you with us? Okay. Uh, apparently not. Now, I really wanted an answer to that question, too. Up oh, there he is. Oh, there he is. Okay. Did you hear the question, Nigel? Oh, there we go again. All right. Uh, the glories of the modern world. Yes. 
Okay. All right. Can you can you hear us? Yeah. This is where it becomes like a seance. You're right. I'm breaking it. Okay. Okay. I think we have you back there. Did you get that question? Um, I wonder if we should uh, maybe call him back. Uh, wait. When in doubt, just have patience, Father. Well, uh, I don't know if you can do that on the air. Well, we're doing a great job because we're still talking. Well, that's true. Nigel, can you uh, can you hear us? Okay. Did did you get that I, question? I okay. It just broke up a bit then. All right. We were just to ask if there were uh, if there have been uh, artifacts of these machines, if that's what they were found in any modern uh, context. Uh, you know, remains of airships, uh, reports written by inventors, things of that kind. Because you um, think there would be? Yeah, you think there would be because, uh, particularly with the American scare, there were uh, several stories of people finding bits of machinery in remote locations, which they said was wreckage from an airship. And um, I think some people even um, had a little airship exhibition where they said they'd captured a, a crashed airship and were charging people so many cents to look at it. So even then there was a sort of entrepreneurial <laughs> aspect to yes. And uh, But um, I don't think... I don't know whether people were just making up some of these stories of finding bits of machinery or, you know, because it was so mundane, probably nobody bothered saving it. Um, yeah, I don't think, as far as I know, there's any um, any sort of physical evidence of these things. Um, but we, yeah, it's quite interesting, though, in 1909, um, somebody called uh, Lethbridge was walking over Caerphilly Mountain and he encountered two men in large coats who spoke uh, a foreign language they assumed we were like two German officers and they jumped into the basket of an airship and flew away and they had two electric lights on their basket illuminating it as it flew away and he took some newspaper reporters there the next day and they found a big um, trench in the ground where the craft had probably landed and then there were lots of newspaper clippings about airships and wartime and also a few bits of like tyre valves and bits of paper um, uh, you know which sort of indicated that perhaps they had you know there had been a real craft landing there but I suppose for pieces of um, remains were so trivial nobody ever bothered collecting it you know but uh, you know and there again you might think perhaps if, if it was uh, a hoax you know somebody cleverly made these ground marks and um, left those bits there but um, it seems a bit elaborate to have done that in a fairly remote location and the same night that person saw this um, craft um, uh, people at the nearby Cardiff um, docks also saw a flying airship as well so there was a bit of collaboration there but um, you know generally speaking I don't think there was much um, physical evidence to support these claims um, mainly because you know people saw lights in the sky and were quite distant and um, you know the landings were fairly um, brief really Yes. 
Well, before we uh, run out of time, we wanted to give you a chance to talk about your books, uh, where people can find out more. I know you don't have a website, but uh, yeah, and I'm you on have a Facebook page. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. Um, I have a sort of UFO investigations page, uh, UFO investigations manual, because that's a book I had out um, a few years ago through the Haynes Motoring Manuals series, and um, but looks at uh, sort of uh, uh, an overview of a UFO subject, looking at all the different main UFO waves and flap areas and the theories, uh, you know, everything from ley lines to, um, you know, aliens, really. And um, I was quite pleased with that book because there's quite a lot of illustrations in it and kind of as a kind of overall guide to the subject. Um, my more recent book is Captured by Aliens, um, by McFarlane books and, and that I look at um, how the American abduction scares have kind of come about uh, the influence of Anthony Villas-Boas and how the subjects kind of evolved from the Betty Hill case into modern times and I also kind of look back at how you know the airships and um, cases and a bit of science fiction affected these things uh, I think another thing is uh, with abductions uh, because they're so exotic uh, there's quite a lot of psychological explanations for them I suppose the most prominent of that is the um, sleep paralysis and um, I've, I've come across a few cases of people who, who um, probably did experience sleep paralysis because um, you know, they saw aliens or lights uh, in their bedroom uh, on on waking. Sleep paralysis that happens in that stage of um, your brain not really knowing whether you're awake or not. So you're kind of in this twilight zone between um, being awake and being asleep. And in this sort of twilight period, sleep paralysis, paralysis can occur. Uh, one particular case was of a, a woman in um, northern England and she saw like little spaceships going round her bedroom and then she saw these re- really weird doll-like creatures at the end of her bed and that happened on several occasions. And, um, you know, that, those sort of things do occur to people even, you know, and... Um, Adduction cases can be perhaps explained like that, but obviously things like the Betty and Barney Hill case, they were driving along at night, so they couldn't possibly have been, you know, fast asleep as we were driving, really. And, uh, you know, so any cases outdoors, really, they don't seem to be um, answered by sleep paralysis. So it's quite a... Uh, an intriguing subject because um, it's easy just to come out with some of these explanations that cover all the cases but when you start looking at them you know one by one um, you know there can be lots of other um, explanations for them or possibilities um, so I think it's difficult being sceptic really because you, you, you can't just give a bland overview of them and just say that's an explanation for everything um, you know you have to look at them in more detail yes well it's ironic we have uh, uh, a number of experiencers in our live audience and we happen to be broadcasting today from the state of New Hampshire where the Betty and Barney Hill uh, oh, yeah. event occurred so yeah. uh, we have our ironies today 
So, so uh, Nigel, in your work, have you encountered any um, what could be described as hostile encounters with any of these these ships or their occupants? Um, yes, I've I've met a couple of people who um, were quite um, threatened by their experiences. Um, there was one person I met um, who who said he'd um, encountered these alien females and they so, tried to drag him to his um, drag him to their spaceship in an invisible car and um, he, they made him go shopping looking at female clothing and things like that but they kind of seemed a bit sinister as well um, and you know he was kind of frightened by his experiences um, and somebody else I met um, seen a UFO and then a few years later it started getting messages from them and they were really dark visions of um, you know the world coming to the end and he thought they were really sinister but he did think there were also good forces fighting against them but he felt that we were like the, the filling in a, in a sandwich and between good and evil extraterrestrial forces and he was quite depressing to talk to really because he had such a gloomy uh, take on everything but you could probably understand it from what he'd been experiencing because he got these kind of telepathic messages and he'd, he'd sort of quickly write down these things and he did brilliant illustrations of um, you know the aliens and things and he he, he, he um, depicted humanoid aliens, um, almost biblical type people, but he also did um, like a, almost like a classic grey with a space suit and a sort of large head. And, um, you know, so I think, but I think, the, you know, um, some of these experiences do have a powerful good as well. And some people have had, have been abducted and and being uh, enhanced by their experiences, you know, have seen the world from a bigger perspective and felt more grateful about humanity and become vegetarian and lived, you know, healthier lives. So, um, you know, like a lot, a lot of things in ufology, they, uh, there's the, the, the white and the black, really. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a thing, though, a lot of these experiences are so influential on people and um, I don't know whether it's just how people perceive these things that make them think it's evil or good or whether there are you know, different forces at work that target certain people. Hmm. I'm thinking back to something you said and it reminded me uh, regarding the, the evolving technology possibly <coughs> of these, <coughs> excuse me, these various crafts. And uh, the late Ted Phillips, uh, whose loss was a terrible loss for our field, I believe, uh, would be on the show. And he would always say that he, uh, we would ask him, why do you have nuts and bolts craft uh, in the early period, it, going back to the airship period that, that we've been discussing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, in, in the last 20, 15 to 20 years, you have uh, balls of light, uh, more almost ethereal sorts of craft, things of this kind. Um so do you, th- do you think the technology is involving? He, he thought that the lights were probes, you know, uh, as opposed to actual craft. I mean, 
What are your thoughts on that, and what have you seen in your own research as far as the evolution of these these craft, if that's what they are, uh, concerned? It's interesting because uh, I was reading someone someone else was writing about the airships and uh, and UFOs in general. They're saying they've become more alien over time. They started uh, with you know um, airships or even aircraft and things, and then they evolved into Foo Fighters and um, Phantom rockets. Uh, ghost rockets seen over Sweden and then they become through Kenneth Arnold uh, flying saucers and discs um, and when when the phantom airships were seen the the, um, the craft had all sorts of wings and propellers and rotors and you know when you see some of the illustrations in the newspaper at the time you think these are impossible craft because they've got you know wings and um, baskets hanging from them and rotors and all sorts of, uh, you know it wouldn't be a viable craft but it's what people believed and it's same with um, modern day encounters a lot of these you know UFOs that people report um, seem quite impossible really some of them are just gigantic or um, you know using tech, super technology um, but if you look back for, say to the 50s and 60s some of these spaceships look a bit more like um, rickety old airships or something uh, Anthony Villaspoa's uh, um, spaceship um, is almost boat shaped and as uh, very fragile landing legs and uh, I think he actually had to climb a rope to get into it um, a rope ladder so it doesn't sound like a very um, superior piece of technology, really. And um, a lot of these reports, also by uh, contactees, the craft sound something out of uh, the science fiction films of that time. And so uh, craft often um, was a classic disc that span round and would have a, a door that opened and a free three legs, landing legs and a ramp and then the alien would appear uh, inside the door and come down the ramp often attended by a robot uh, like the day the earth stood still one of the films shown here at the film festival this weekend alright, yes that's a classic so uh, I think that had a lot of influence on um, you know, uh, real reports as well, and perhaps it was also influenced by stories that people were telling as real. So, this space between science fiction, particularly science fiction of that period, and 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 what people report. Um, I think as well, um, with the stood still, you know, the robot um, takes the people on board and so. There's this image of somebody being of a woman, I think, being abducted by the robot uh, inside the craft, and that uh, is kind of a powerful influence of somebody being abducted. And it, it was such a brilliantly made film as well. You know, the craft does, does look very realistic, and also it's got this anti-war message to it as well, and um, you know, very much like. Um, the contactee I was talking to you about who said about good and bad forces you know we felt that um, you know these forces were there to try and um, do something with humanity and we were just pawns in a larger game but um, 
You don't really hear so much about people seeing spaceships and craft nowadays. Um, you know, with the technology involved so much so that instead of aliens coming down a ramp from a spaceship, uh, it evolved into people being um, abducted in the night by lights, light beams that took people through the windows or through the walls in the bedroom and we were kind of um, dragged up by these light beams into spaceships and uh, there's this thing about doorway amnesia people didn't know how they got into the spaceship and would suddenly find themselves being um, um, uh, being on a, a medical examination desk and being examined by aliens and um, so the, the technology even in the last few decades has, has evolved and become um, far less soft, clunky and technological in the way that the 50s films were. Indeed. Well, Nigel, I'm afraid that's just about all the time we have. Uh, we have a, a number of announcements to come up. But thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to having you back again soon. And uh, we um, wish you uh, the very best right now. So. Yeah, great Very good. Hey, you're welcome to stay on the line and listen to the rest because we, we can't hang up because we're on with the studio as well. So, okay, very good. Um, many thanks uh, to Susan Spooler and the volunteers who have made the New England UFO Conference Film Festival possible this year against considerable odds. And thanks to uh, Dennis Markovarich, uh, owner of this great venue, the Wilton Town Hall Theater in Wilton, New Hampshire. And uh, we have had a wonderful time. And I really have to say... I was overwhelmed this weekend because um, it's my 50th anniversary month uh, in the paranormal, 50th anniversary year, certainly, and it is this month. And uh, the wonderful folks here, particularly Susan, who cooked a meal by herself I, I, with a little help, you know, for, what was it, 15 people uh, in my honor last night. And I, I just, I did not expect uh, that. I was given uh, some wonderful awards, including a set of combs that I think that I can really use uh, because I, I look like a rat's nest half the time. Uh, ben, you've solved the problem by, by uh, not needing a comb. But uh, I want to thank everyone who was in uh, a, a, a film that was made, uh, people wishing me well, all the way from Travis Walton and, and uh, uh, Colin Andrews all the way down to, our, to some of the people who are in the audience here. I don't mean down. They were all equally wonderful for me. But uh, I just, I, I, I was overwhelmed, and I just, I can't thank you all enough. Thank you so much. So uh, next weekend, uh, the Western Connecticut UFO Conference will take place via Zoom on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, that'll be October 17th and 18th. This is the free annual event sponsored by the Danbury Connecticut Public Library. Along with ourselves, speakers will include our own Shane Stairway and Mark D'Antonio, along with uh, Linda Zimmerman, Mike Panicello of Connecticut MUFON, and more. Uh, on Sunday, we will simulcast our show from here, uh, I, I should, well, I should say from at our studio in Rhode Island, WOON, with special guest Dr. Bill Burns of the UFO Hunters TV series, New York Times bestselling author and publisher of UFO magazines. Uh, okay. There. Okay, so uh, you can uh, additionally, Ben, I guess uh, we'll leave you to do the producer thing. Uh, we have word that the New England ParaFest, 
uh, will take place April 10th and 11th, 2021 in Kittery, Maine, and that we will do a live broadcast of this show with a panel of the speakers on Sunday the 11th. More information will be forthcoming. And I should say, oh, I should note the bow ties today. I'm usually wearing one, but Ben is as well. And the bow ties were among uh, the uh, the items uh, distributed. Everyone was wearing in the the film that was, and a lot of people are wearing them today here in the audience. I think it's it's another wonderful uh, kind of a thing that we were enjoying. You're gonna two minutes, okay? All right, so you can um, check out our books uh, along with other things at uh, behindtheparanormal.com. We can also find more about the show, our charities that we've adopted in many cases over the years. And we have uh, over uh, almost 900 shows posted on various podcast platforms and at BehindTheParanormal.com, so make sure you check that out. Okay, let's um, look at what we have for next week. Uh, October 18th, we're broadcasting, as I say, live, uh, but virtually from Western Connecticut UFO Conference with guest Bill Burns, as we said, uh, of the UFO Hunter series. And uh, we leave you today with a thought from Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Too early. I, too early. Okay. Well, you have a quote, Ben? I do. Uh, that was the quote. No, yeah, the, the quote is too early, uh, and it was by me, uh, coined approximately 45 seconds ago. All right. Very good. All right. So, again, a thank you to our, our live audience, to the folks here at the uh, Wilton Town Hall Theater. And... Um, we uh, I guess still have time. Still have so time. Really? I, I, okay. I appreciate that you're trying to expedite time. I don't have a un- clock here. That's well, like- unfortunately, uh, Father Time is, is not is not on your side today, Father. <laughs> no. uh, but at, on behalf of, of everybody that was involved in the the little little thing that was that was put together by Susan, uh, many thanks to you, Susan. Um, you know, you've done quite a lot for a lot of people, I think, speaking as an individual who never really thinks about the impact they have on anybody else. I believe you're probably of the same mind, considering we are very similar. Uh, you probably have never taken the time, or maybe you have taken the time to think about what all the stuff you've affected, but you're not the kind of guy to be like, oh, well, I did this. You're the kind of guy that's like, well, let's move on to the next thing and do something different. But you've really affected a lot of people with all of your work. And thank you for all of that. And now I may say the quote. Well, thank you, Ben. I'm embarrassed as it is. Good. Anyway, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, I'd not spend one further moment on the subject of UFOs. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the